It's good to see you all this morning. I'm really grateful for this congregation that God is raising up. Even Ted Schuster in our midst, it's still a blessing that they have you all here. And trust you had a good Thanksgiving. We gather in his name, we worship, we pray, we hear the word of God, and we fellowship. So it's good to be together. And uh, let's look at our text today. We have 10 chapters to cover. And uh, the teacher in me says I need a week of lectures on each each chapter. There's some really good stuff here. I read a, a pastor's book called Messy Spirituality some years ago, and it was a reflection of his ministry with God's people in South L.A. His name was, I love his name, Mike Iaconelli. And he just put those two words together you don't often hear together, messy and spirituality as a description of what it is like to have a journey of faith in fallen vessels that we live in. The challenge that we see in God's plan as he continues in his way to work through dysfunctional people, fallen people, sinful, perverted people. Why does he do that? What is the purpose of his thread of redemption his thread of the promised Messiah and the way he works through humanity. And I want us to look at the, 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 really the how and the why of that this morning as we look at these texts. I hope that by going through this this morning, and we're going to do it very quickly, but you'll see a thread and a theme of what God is doing and why. There are some great stories that are would be in any other context, racy novel form of what's taking place from Genesis 25 all the way through 35. And I want to begin then just to state our big idea, our theme this morning, and then we're going to kind of parse the stories in Genesis 25 through 35. So here's our theme. Good news. We need to hear that today. We are loved by God that in and through our fallen lineage or our genealogy, he brings his promised savior. The first part of that big idea is this, the good news. We need to understand that the good news is the plan of God from the beginning. And actually, according to Paul in Ephesians 1, it was before the beginning, it was before creation. God had planned to redeem us. There's a whole lot of great discussion about theology with just that understanding. But this was God's plan from the beginning that he would redeem his people, his creation. We see that in Genesis 3.15 in the promise to, to the serpent and to, and to Eve that he would bring a redeemer. Genesis 12.3 to Abraham, I will make into you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing and all the peoples on earth will be blessed by you. And then a New Testament perspective, Galatians 3, 7 through 9, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel, which literally means the good news. Now notice this, in advance to Abraham, by saying all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith 
are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. So we need from the outset of this message, this understanding of Genesis, that there is good news, that God has a plan from the beginning to redeem his people. The second part of that big idea, we are so loved by God. Why is he doing this? Because of his great love, the good news is a result of the love of God for us. We see that in Genesis 1. He created us in his image, male and female. And so therefore, he loves his creation. He made us perfect in his image. And then we fell into sin. And even in that, Romans 5.8, we see the love of God. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Note this, while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Note that. In our perfected state, he created us perfect in his image. We sinned against him. We shook our fists basically in his face. We continue to do that generation by generation. And yet God says why we were yet sinners in that imperfect state. Christ died for us. So Genesis 25 through 35 is the ongoing story of God's plan. While we were yet sinners, he is producing and going to produce and has produced the Messiah. And from this chapter on to the end of Genesis, we find the story of Jacob in that plan. It is the story of Jacob. Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And in these stories, we see the presence of God throughout. It's all about what God is doing in his chosen people. And everywhere in this story, his presence is felt in the middle of and in and through the messiness of their lives. And these are our heroes of faith. These are the people of promise. They wrote the book on dysfunction. Yet God saw fit to work through these men and women to bring the promised Messiah. So with that, we'll look at the last part of the big idea, that in through our fallen lineage, he brings about our promised Savior. Genesis 22, a reminder the great story it begins with just did such a super job last Sunday, the steadfastness of our faith in the midst of how God may test us. And God said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your only son, tested his faith. God provided a lamb, picture of the Messiah to come. And Abraham passed that test, remained steadfast in his faith. Genesis 23, Abraham's wife Sarah dies. The one who gave birth in her old age to the son of the promise, Isaac. Genesis 24, Abraham is reminded of the promise of God to bless him. And so he sends a servant back to his people in Haran and says, I want you to find him a wife. And God finds him a wife and brings Rebekah back willingly, who saw the hand of God in what was going on in Abraham's life. And Isaac meets Rebekah. This is all in 24. And they 
fall in love as strangers and committed to the promise. 25 of Genesis, Abraham dies. The man of the promise, after which God blesses his son Isaac. I want to pause there just for a moment. What do you do when a hero of faith to you dies? Someone you love deeply, a mom or a dad or a grandfather or grandmother, who have, who have lived this life of faith, and they had been tested day in and day out, and they've maintained their faith Never perfectly, but they were models to us. Do you pick up the mantle of their faith? Or are you so discouraged that you all of a sudden, I want to do my own thing? That's the test of where our faith is. If this is just the test of mom and dad or our grandparents, but is this my faith? They were models of faith to me. Am I going to carry that on as my faith? Both Nancy and I had great models of parents and grandparents, and all of them are gone. All of them. We need to pick up that mantle. What about all you gray hairs here? Are you going to live a life of faith that someone else can pick up? Are you going to be steadfast in your faith? that your children and their children will look back and say, look at the faith of my grandfather, my mother. Genesis 25, we see the next generation coming on. We see the birth of Esau and Jacob. Look at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord and on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. And the babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. And we see the birth of Esau and Jacob. Esau, the hairy one, the red one, came out first. Jacob is grabbing onto his heel, the one who deceives or grabs the heel. And these two boys grow up very differently. Same mom and dad. Esau was a hunter, skilled in the country. And literally, Jacob was content to stay at home with mom. So it reads, Isaac had a taste for game, and Esau was a hunter. Jacob stayed in the tents, and the text says that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You know what I mean by dysfunction? From the very beginning, the jostling, the challenge of these two boys... And Jacob is a conniver as we begin to see, yet he is fulfilling prophecy of the line of the Messiah. Meanwhile, Genesis 26, 
There's a famine in the land. In Palestine, the Lord appears to Isaac and says, I don't want you to run to Egypt. I want you to stay in Palestine. I will protect you. I will sustain you because I have promised this land. And he repeats again the promise to his father. I will bless you in this land. I will give you many descendants. So Isaac stayed and and he obeyed. Now there was a king in the land of Abimelech, the Philistine king, who was the protector. And Isaac was afraid of him. So he said his wife was his sister, thinking that would help him. Does that sound familiar about Abraham and Sarah? And in spite of that, Abimelech finds out he becomes a greater protector. Protect this man and his descendants because God is with him. And during that time, then God appeared again to Isaac and said, Don't be afraid for I am with you. I am the God of your father, Abraham. Stay the course. Then in Genesis 27... Jacob takes Esau's blessing from Isaac. Isaac is blind. He calls his son Esau, go to the field, get a wild game and bring him in. I'm going to give you my my blessing. Rebekah overhears it. And she goes to Jacob and tells him what's going on. I want you to impersonate your brother Esau. Jacob says, how can I do that? I'm I'm not hairy like he is. I I don't hunt like him. None of that. He said, I want you to go out and kill two goats. I'm going to make one of his favorite stews, and I'm using the skin of the other goat to cover your arms and your hand and your neck so he thinks when he touches you because he's blind, he'll think that you are Esau. And so they, they go through with that ruse And Isaac is fooled. He said, I hear the voice of Jacob, but I I smell Esau. And I feel Esau. But it's the voice of Jacob. But he blesses Jacob the younger and gives him the blessing of the firstborn, all according to the plan of God, using the deception of a mom and her favorite boy. You read that story and you think, my goodness, God, what are you doing? And how are you doing this? And why are you doing it this way? We'll try to answer that later. So Esau is just a bit ticked. He comes back and finds out his brother stole his blessing. He had stolen his birthright and now he stole the blessing of his father. And so Rebecca and Isaac send them off again for protection and to take a wife from their family back in Haran because you're not going to marry a woman from Canaan. Esau saw that. He had married several women for Canaan as a rebellious act to his parents. We're seeing his heart and his passion for sin. And Isaac said, we're going to send you off. We're going to protect you. And you need to find yourself a wife from our, our family back home. So he goes and he journeys north and he's headed to Haran. And on the way, he's sleeping. He pulls out a, a pillow, a rock, and lays his head. Talk about firm mattress and pillow. He's got a granite one. And as he's sleeping that night, 
God reveals himself in a dream. And he's laying out under the stars and he sees the stairway from where he is laying all the way to the heavens. And there's angels going to and from earth into heaven. And at the top of that ladder is Yahweh, the God, the personal name of God, who again gives him the blessing, the understanding of what it is to be blessed with the blessing of his father and grandfather, Abraham and Isaac. And he says this, I want us to look at these verses in verses 16 and 17. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was so surprised by the presence of God and what he saw. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he called in verse 19, he called the place Bethel, which literally means house of God. He recognizes that God is here and present in his life. He is not alone in what he has been going through. He's seeing the blessings being passed on to him in a very visible way of what God is doing in his people. And so he heads on to Haran, not knowing exactly what was going to take place and who he would meet and how God would bless him. But he goes trusting the God who met him, this house of God place, where it's very clear that he saw God. Genesis 29 and 30. Jacob works 14 years for Leah and Rachel. There's a whole story there. We could go into that and how they met and what their father did to keep him there. 14 years, his love was so great. They had sons and a daughter, sons who would become later the names of those who lead the tribes in Israel. In verse 31, or chapter 31, Jacob, they began to make plans to head back to Palestine because Laban, his father-in-law, is not happy at all with him. He's made too much money. God has blessed him and has not blessed him, his own father-in-law. And Jacob said, it's time for us to leave. And God appears to him again in verse 13 of 31 and says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. So he runs with his family Hundreds and thousands in his flock and his possessions, his large family and a growing group of men and servants and women who serve him. Laban catches up with him. And God appears to Laban and says, don't you touch him. You leave your family and his family alone because I have blessed him. Laban catches up and he just does that. He blesses Jacob and his daughters and sends them on their way. Now in chapter 32, Jacob is getting ready to meet his long-lost brother Esau, wondering what this kind of reunion would be like, knowing what he had done. 14-plus years, probably closer to 20 years in total, he's going to meet Esau. Esau knows that he is coming. 
He's coming to meet him with 400 of his own men. Jacob is not happy, and he's afraid. And that night, before he's to meet Esau, Jacob has a visitor. And you wrestlers would love this because this, wrestle, this, this visitor wrestled with him all night long. No first period, second period, third period, take a break. All night long, and he realizes that this is divinity. And he and God wrestle to a tie. And Jacob begs for his blessing. Begs for him blessing. Don't let me go until you bless me. And God changes his name to Israel. He struggles with God. There's a whole lot of theology there to understand, but I believe this in summary is this. God has become the God of Jacob and not the God of his fathers. He was so challenged and intimate in this relationship, this physicality of of God and the, the mystery of this divine being in human flesh and a vigorous picture of Jacob wrestling with him, wanting and demanding and asking his blessing personally. He goes back to camp limping because God had touched his hip. And he limped the rest of his life as a reminder of his time with God. Genesis 33 is the next day. As they head to Palestine, Esau meets them with his 400 men He gets off his camel and he comes striding towards Jacob. And the beauty of that story is they embraced each other and they wept together. Yet because of what was taking place in Esau's passionate love for what was wrong, he went back to his home country, South Palestine. We came Edom later on in Scripture. But at least there was reconciliation between those two brothers. And Jacob is so happy at Shechem, north of Jerusalem. He sets up an idol that says, The mighty, mighty is the God of Israel. Mighty is the God of the one who struggles with God. Genesis 34, in this context, Dinah, the only daughter, is raped by the son of an area king. Jacob's brothers are furious. And basically, make a long story short, they destroy that city. Wipe it clean. And here Jacob is just stunned. What are you doing? We've come back to this land. Now we got enemies all around. They're hearing what's going on. Why did you do that without permission from me? It is in this context, again, in the aftermath of this event, God appears to Jacob. And let's look at 35.1. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel. In other words, leave Shechem. Go to Bethel, which is kind of up into the hill country near what we now know as Jerusalem. And I want you to settle there. And build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your 
Brother Esau, see again the reminder of my presence, the reminder of the house of God where I reside. And so Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and, and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. This is such, again, a foundational meeting with God and Jacob. The third time he's there are reminded, you met with me. You called this place the house of God. And now I want you really, truly to get serious even more serious than you have been about trusting me and following me. Get rid of the gods that are in your family. It gives a little glimpse of what was going on behind the scene, the polytheistic nature of their families and the household idols that Rachel had stole from her father's house in, in Haran. He said, get rid of all these other gods that we have in our tents. Purify yourselves. This is where God lives. So God, again, affirms his promise later on in this chapter to Jacob and his descendants, repeats the very same language. I am with you. I will bless you. I will not forsake you. I will be with you, and I will bless you. I think we need to remember again the theme, the thread here, the good news that we are so loved by God that in and through our fallen lineage, he brings his promised Savior. We are fallen people. Yet we are loved by God. We have got to land in that truth. It's because of our sin that his love is so great. Because of his creation, he leaned towards us, his, those made in his image, and says, I love you this much. Remember I said I had some questions about God's ways, especially in that dysfunctional family. This deceiving one, literally in the Hebrew idiom, idiom Jacob means the one who deceives. Through this family of Jacob, he is going to continue the blessings and the promise. What is God doing? Why does he choose to work in this way? Why does he choose to work through great dysfunction? Colossians, 2 Corinthians 4 has has the answer. 2 Corinthians 4, as we wrap up this morning, why is God doing this through such imperfect, broken, dysfunctional people? 2 Corinthians 4, the context. I want to start in verse 4. We'll pick up in 6 and 7. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, 
but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now look at verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis chapter 1, in this formless and void universe in the darkness, he said, let there be light, creation light. This same God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This new creation light is the gospel, the good news in Jesus Christ that he says, let there be light in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sins. The, the parallels are unmistakable. The God of creation, the glory of Christ seen in the life, transforming glory of God in the gospel. Then in verse 7, where is this light? But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Jars of clay throughout ancient literature just refers to the weakness of human flesh. What Paul is saying, what we're trying to understand from Genesis 25 through 35 is that we are Bethel. We are the house of God. Within this fallen vessel, every one of us, in the gospel, the light of Jesus Christ is to be seen in us and through us to our world. That's why he worked with dysfunctional people and broken people and sinful and perverted people. That the light of his forgiveness and his grace and his glory can be seen and it's not about us. It's all about him and his glory. He is not looking for perfection. He's looking for worship through Jesus Christ, his son, who gives us his righteousness. We claim his righteousness to be seen in our fallen vessels that will continue to be fallen until we see him one day. The sin, our sin, is the point. Jacob's brokenness is the point. God said, I still am present. I still will bless. I still will correct you. I will still bring you along as the son of the promise because this is all about my glory being seen in your weakness. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. I'm going to take, have us take a few things home today, okay? First thing is this. Nobody in these stories looks good except God. Nobody looks good except God. See his work in your life. He has and he will keep his promises. The story of our lives is a story of God working in us and through us. 
Secondly, because that's true, believe. Believe the good news. Believe the gospel delivered beforehand to Abraham. Believe it accepted in Jesus Christ and his image on the cross and his resurrection. We are loved by God. He created us. He then saves us. He understands our brokenness. And he has made a way for us to be reconciled to God. Third thing is be confident. Be confident in your relationship with Jesus. Recognize that in our jars of clay, we have the glory of the gospel within us. Don't live in someone else's jar. Don't compare yourself with someone else's life. Don't look down on someone else's life when they make a mistake and they sin. They have their own jar. They have their own earthen vessel that's broken. And again, that's the point that the glory of the gospel will be seen even in those imperfections and those fallenness and those sins that we will commit. It's only because of Christ he continues to reside in in the house of God, us. The subtitle of that book, Messy Spirituality, I love. It fits here. He writes, God's annoying love for imperfect people. His annoying love. Always loving us. I want my glory to be seen in your life, even in your brokenness, because it is an earthen vessel. I created you from dust. And your vessels of the earth, it's fallen, that the glory of the gospel will be seen in you. And the last thing, stop striving for what you have been given by grace. Stop striving for what you have been given by grace. We work too hard. To please God, and we can't do that in our own flesh. We do it because of the glory of Christ is in our flesh, redeeming us every day, once at the cross, every day through confession and worship. Jacob tried to gain by cheating and dysfunction what was given to him by promise. And yet God still blessed him. Why? Because of his grace. Cease striving. Accept the grace of God to you in Jesus Christ. Live in that grace. Some of you feel such brokenness that you could never measure up. And you can't. But it's only in Jesus that you can. Your walk of faith, your life of grace in the vessel in which God has placed you is where God wants you and he wants you to trust in him and live in his grace and understand he will never leave us nor forsake us. And that's a prime reason why we have communion.
Every Sunday, we remind ourselves of the presence of God in these earthen vessels because of Jesus Christ. And he gets the glory. It's his body and it is his blood that was shed for us. Live in that beauty. Live in that grace because he is worthy. Father, we thank you beyond measure for choosing to work in us and through us. That your goodness is seen every day, even when we sin. Your grace is unmeasurable to your people. You have fulfilled your promises through sinful, broken people. And Father, so we stand here today only because of the cross, only because of the your body and your blood that were shed for us. And so as we gather, help us to be again reminded of your patience, your grace, and your love for your people. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for residing in us that you will get all the glory and all the praise of our lives in you. We thank you in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.